Bless you, Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you that you woke us up this morning, that you give us life and breath, that in you we live and move and have our being, even when we're unaware of it, you sustain our lives. We pray now, Lord, just as you feed us physically, that you would feed us spiritually by your word. And we pray these things in the name of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Most of us probably haven't paid much attention to church doors. Certainly in our own context, there's nothing very significant about the doors that we enter each week to worship. But sometimes, and especially with older churches, the door itself might say something with words or with a symbol. There's a beautiful church here in Charlotte that has engraved in stone above its main door the words, Enter to Worship. I've never been inside, but I imagine on the inside, going out, there's probably something like leave to serve him or mission or something like that. But enter to worship as you enter into the place. It's a great reminder of what a building is for and why God's people are coming into it. If you've spent any time in Europe and you've seen one of the many great cathedrals in that place, uh, they knew how to do church doors right. <laughs> Massive things, often with um, not just words, but like stone stories written in, uh, etched into to the door. And back then that was particularly important in a non-literate, pre-literate society. You had to find ways to communicate with God's people to get the message across. So stained glass and things like church doors would have done that. We'll go back even earlier, 2,000 years ago. In the time of Jesus, and imagine that you are a worshiper, and you are going up to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. There you would be greeted at the entrance to the temple with a great symbol. It was, and this might surprise you, I didn't know this until this week, but it was a golden vine with great clusters attached that were as tall as a man. What a curious image to adorn the entrance of a place of worship. If we didn't know any better, we might think that we were walking into a temple to the god Bacchus, the god of wine. But this, of course, is Yahweh's temple. Why was there a massive grapevine and great clusters? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel is frequently compared to a vine or a vineyard. God planted them. That's the language that's used. He planted them in a good land, and he wanted them to flourish and to bear fruit. But we know that they struggled to do so. They didn't produce the moral and spiritual fruit that God desired, and so they were uprooted. They were forced to leave their land. They were cut off, but they didn't give up hope. They continued to long for a day when they would be replanted and they would thrive and flourish again. And so some of the story of Israel is told through vine and grapes, that imagery. That's why they chose to put it on their temple. It reminded them of God's desire, fruitfulness from his people. It recalled their history from exodus to exile and it stirred their hopes of a future restoration for a time of flourishing. That's the background for our gospel lesson today. We have Jesus. It's the night of the Last Supper. Um, he's probably left the upper room now. He's with his disciples, probably making his way out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says these words. 
I am the true vine. Not I am a vine. Not even I am the vine. No, Jesus says I am the true vine. You feel how audacious his words are. He's taking that symbol of Israel and he's applying it to himself. But he doesn't stop there. He continues to teach. He goes on and he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. And then he tells his disciples to abide in me if they want to bear fruit. Apart from Jesus, no fruit. So he's taking Israel and their history and this symbol and their hopes for a future. And he's saying it all finds its fulfillment in me. You want to be rooted? You want to be planted? You want to thrive and fulfill all these promises of God? Then you must connect up with me. You must be one of the branches that gets its life from me. There is no other way to be fruitful. Because apart from me, a person, an institution, a church will wither and be discarded. Bold words from Jesus. In many ways, they are severe. Really? There's, there's no other way? There's no other life source? There's no other way in this life to, to link up with something that would bear fruit, that would lead to the good human life? No, Jesus says, there's not. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Meaning nothing of lasting and eternal value. Nothing that matters. Those words might trouble us. For apart from Christ, they certainly should trouble us. But if we're in Christ, if we're abiding in him and we receive those words... They are deeply comforting because they lay out for us a different way to follow Christ than we sometimes find ourselves doing so. I'm convinced that one of the greatest um, explanations of the spiritual life, of following Jesus, is found in this chapter, John 15, in this imagery, vine and branches. Personally, I have been helped by it so many times as I try to follow Christ and find I'm doing it in some way that's not fitting, and again the words come to me. Abide in me and I in you. Or there's times when I I know it's in Jesus, but I'm going after it, and I'm going to squeeze life out of that vine, so help me God. And Jesus says, no, it's not going to work either. Just abide in me and I in you. There is a lot in these 11 verses. Um, Two years ago, we looked at this passage in four Sundays. Uh, Today we're going to do it in one. And so I'm not going to go into as much detail. Instead, I just want to ask two simple questions of the text and see how the text might answer them. The first question is, how can we know that we are abiding? And the second question, what do you want to ask for? How can we know that we are abiding? What do you want to ask for? So first, how can we know that we're abiding? If it's that important. If it's life-giving, if apart from it we are cut off, then it's pretty important that we know that we are abiding. So how do we do it? Um, Let me suggest four signs from the text. The first one is, are we fruitful? This is pretty obvious. Verse 5, Jesus says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So if we're abiding, we will see fruit. Pretty clear sign because it's the natural process. If a branch remains connected to a healthy vine, you can expect to see fruit. 
Jesus doesn't define what that fruit is, but from reading the whole of Scripture, Old Testament and New, we can understand that it is spiritual and moral fruit. We have a lot of lists in the Bibles. The most famous, of course, because it uses the word fruit, is Galatians 5. The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So let's just take that list. Do you see that in your life? Not perfectly. Not in every instance. But over time, do you see that kind of fruit in your soul? And then if you think you do, would those around you say that as well? Your coworkers, roommates, children's spouse, would they say, yes, yes, we receive acts of love coming from this person. Yes, we can bear witness to the joy and peace that characterizes her countenance. Yes, we know that there is self-control when that person faces their urges, their idols. No one is perfectly fruitful. But we should be able to, and those around us, look at our lives over time and say, yes, there's fruit. And that's a sign that we're truly abiding. But it's not the only sign. We need other ones. We know that there are seasons of great fruitfulness where we feel the love, joy, peace, and patience. It's really kind of bubbling out of us. And there's other times where it's harder to see. That doesn't necessarily mean we've stopped abiding. And so we need to look at some other signs as well. A second one. Are we being pruned? Are we being pruned? Jesus identifies his father as the vine dresser and says that every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear even more fruit. Seems counterintuitive, but a fruitful abiding life is regularly pruned. The father actually cuts things out of our lives. Now, sometimes he cuts out dead branches. That could be a bad habit, a particular struggle with sin, an unhealthy relationship. Those are more easy to understand, right? Okay, I get that. You need to cut that out of my life. I think where it gets difficult is where he's cutting out something that we think is good. It's not bad. Every gardener knows that if you want to see maximum flowers, maximum fruit... You have to cut back other parts of live growth. But it's alive, right? Maybe that branch is going to bear some fruit. Why would you be cutting that off? But the Father knows in His wisdom. He is the vine dresser. He knows which cuts to make. But they can hurt. When God removes what we thought was a healthy relationship, something that we thought was positive, or a job or ministry opportunity that we really wanted. Some other promising direction our our life seemed to be heading that didn't happen. It's hard to readjust our minds, but when we are pruned, we should take that as a sign of encouragement. It means that we're truly abiding. It means that we are bearing fruit and God wants to see even more fruit. It's very similar if you know the passage in Hebrews 12. where He's talking about how the father disciplines his children. Again, discipline is not pleasant at the time, but it's a sign that we are legitimate children. It's actually a sign of God's love that he is disciplining. I would say the same applies to being fruitful. So that's a second one. Are we being pruned? Because if we're abiding, we will be pruned. Third sign. This one sounds a little funny, but it's very important. Does it feel like you're abiding? Does it feel like you're abiding? Someone described abiding as a passive activity 
or an active passivity. Passive activity, active passivity. So abiding involves some effort. It involves our will, but it is not striving. It's not the strenuous exertion of our will that will bear fruit. And just think again, the organic metaphor. Look at a healthy tomato vine. Look at one that's bearing fruit. And look at the branch coming off the vine that has a big ripe piece of fruit on it. It doesn't look like it's working hard, right? It's just kind of abiding. It's just kind of hanging out there being attached. And I think that's the point. God's responsibility is fruit, friends. He's not saying go produce the fruit in yourselves. He's just saying stay linked up, stay connected, keep abiding, abide in my love, rest in my love, and you will bear fruit. That's how the process works. I don't know about you, but I really want to be a good Christian. I want to be good at being good. And sometimes I work really hard at it, and sometimes I work too hard at it. And sometimes it seems the harder I work at it, the less good I am. The funny thing is, the times where I really notice a lot of joy or a lot of peace or a lot of love in my life, it's when I don't seem to be trying that hard. And instead of trying, what I perceive that I'm doing is trusting. I'm abiding. I'm resting in God's love. And lo and behold, there is fruit in my life. So yes, we have to be willing. We have to be involved in the process. Yes, we even have to exercise discipline. Spiritual disciplines are, are what help us abide sometimes. But there's a big difference between what it feels like to strenuously exert our will and strive and to abide, to rest, to remain connected. So does it feel like you're abiding? That's the third one. The fourth one, is Jesus' word abiding in us and are we obeying that word is his word abiding in us and are we obeying that word i get this from verse 7 where he talks about his word abiding in us in verse 10 where he says that if we keep his commandments we will abide in his love this is really important because abiding is not just doing whatever we want it's not just doing what feels good there's a false spirituality in that. It's running rampant through the church. If I want it, it must be good, is how it goes sometimes. Abiding is having the words of Jesus live on the inside of us. Not just know them. It starts with knowing them, but knowing them here. Having them dwell in us. And then, doing what he says. Having that actually shape how we carry out our lives. That's how we abide in his love. That's what he tells us, verse 10. And I have to admit, for a long time, and even sometimes still, when I read those words that he says, keep my commandments to abide in my love, I, I just wrestle with that. Because commandment keeping doesn't feel like love to me. I don't know if anyone else has ever struggled with that, but it feels like, that's kind of more what a slave or servant, you know, but like, abide in my love by commandment keeping. I'm so comforted, however, when Jesus says that that's how he abides in the Father's love. He says, just as I keep my Father's commandments and abide in in his love. So he's actually teaching us the heart of the loving relationship that we willingly, we know, and then we willingly desire to submit to our Father, to submit to Jesus, to have the words living in us shape our thoughts, our actions in obedience. So the words of Jesus, where do we have those? Well, obviously we have them um, recorded for us in Scripture, written down by the apostles for us. 
And this really is uh, the most direct way to have his word abiding in us and to obey his commandments. And so my question is, are we doing that? We don't ever graduate from Bible study school, friends. We go on and on and on spending time in this book, understanding it, dwelling in it. Are we reading? Are we studying the scriptures? Are we getting it into our minds, our hearts, our souls? Hopefully we're doing that individually, but also are we doing it corporately? Just today, we wrapped up our uh, adult and our youth Sunday school, and it was a wonderful time. We had some great, good, solid, biblical teaching this year. And I want to ask, just a gentle reminder, what would it look like for next year? For many of you who didn't avail yourself of that opportunity, what would it look like to wake up a little earlier, to adjust your Sunday morning routine? Say, oh, that's a way I could abide, and not just by myself, but with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Pastorates also have wrapped up. That's a, a less formal time, but it's a time in community. We gather together. We, we abide in the word of God. We listen to it together. We say, what is it saying to us? Again, what, what, did that, what would that look like? We're not having those over the summer, but to kind of get your mind around that this summer and say, as we go into the fall, what would that look like for me to adjust my life a little bit that I could join up with what the body of Christ is doing and abide? We have women's and men's Bible studies that have been going. Again, opportunities to dig deeper into the Word of God. I've heard testimonies from the women who have done this great study in the armor of God of how much fruit that has borne in their life. Why? Because they're abiding in the Word of God. Friends, I know we live in a culture that's busy. There are so many things demanding our time and attention. I mean, just getting to work, for goodness sake, takes forever. And getting home takes forever. I know that is our reality. And yet... I want to ask, are we filling our lives with things that are abiding, whether that's individually or corporately, or are we just kind of getting busy with other stuff? The, the, the culture is never going to shift back to honor Sundays, to honor uh, a Christian trying to walk with God, to honor a way of life that abides, that has Sabbath. It's not going to do that. It's only going to get harder. And so we have to make the hard choices to choose to stand apart from it while still being engaged with it, that we might live a life that abides and not just get into the rat race that everyone else gets into. So that's the first question. How do we know that we're abiding? And we have these different signs that help us see what that looks like, what that feels like. But now the, uh, the second big question. It is, what do you want to ask for? What do you want to ask for? It comes from verse 7. And this really grabbed me as I was studying this passage this week. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's what we've been looking at. Those things are true. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's quite an astounding thing to say. Does Jesus really mean that? Because it's a pretty big promise if he does. Now before we answer that question, we need to look at a little bit of context for the promise so that we don't take it in a wrong direction. So let me point out a few things. First, notice the condition. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's what he says first before he says, ask whatever you wish. So this isn't a promise for the unbeliever. This isn't a promise for a person who really doesn't have anything to do with God, but prays sometimes when he or she is in trouble. This isn't a promise for the devout churchgoer or the cultural Christian. It's a promise for those who are abiding in Christ and have his words abiding in them. 
Not perfectly, but through these signs we see, yes, we're abiding. So that's the first bit of context we need to keep in mind. Uh, next, it's important that we, we know that we're, we're asking for things for fruitfulness. We're asking for things that, that would bring glory to God. And we, we see later that, uh, that he talks about fruitfulness in this passage. Chapter earlier, he makes a similar promise about asking. And it's, it's connected with so that God can be glorified. So that's a, the bigger context is it's not just, hey, give me a, a, you know, a Porsche so I can go down the road and, and show it. It's, it's how would this look? What, what are the things coming out of my heart that would be for fruitfulness in my life, in my church, in my community that would bring glory to God? And then a third bit of context, uh, Jesus says, literally, ask for whatever you all wish. So many times in scripture, when we read the word you, it's actually plural. It's you all. Now, maybe he said this because he was talking to a group, or maybe Jesus um, has something in mind more than just an individual asking, but that a group would be asking, that there's somehow power in the body of Christ coming together with one mind and asking God for something. And Jesus says, it will be done for you. I think that's probably going in the right direction because we have other scriptures like Matthew 18 where Jesus says if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So we can ask on our own, but I think there's a greater power and fulfillment of this promise when the people of God come together with one heart and say, God, would you do this for us for fruitfulness, for your glory. And so with that context, let's hear the promise again. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. You sit in that for a minute. Ask whatever you wish, whatever you desire, and it will be done for you. Do you believe that? Sometimes I think we don't. And I think we don't because every single one of us knows the disappointment of unanswered prayers. Sometimes it, it doesn't seem to work, right? And so I know in, my temptation is to come to a text like this and to say, yeah, that sounds nice, and then begin to caveat it and, and to weigh it down so much, yes, but, yes, but, that it loses its power. I don't want to caveat that promise. I want it to stand with all of the power that Jesus gave it to us. Look at the context, yes, we need to do that, but caveat it, no. I've read some commentators on this, and they explain the promise by saying, well, that if we're abiding, then it's really Jesus praying through us, or that if we're abiding, as words abide us, that we will always pray in accordance with God's will. And, and there's truth to that, but I think it diminishes the point of the promise. Because Jesus doesn't say, ask whatever God wishes, and it will be done for you. What does he say? Ask whatever you all wish, and it will be done for you. We can get so bogged down in our prayers asking, is this God's will or not? I don't know if it's God's will. We, we caveat our prayers, don't we? If this is your will, if this is your will, if this is your will. Or we might worry, well, well there's always a chance that my motives aren't totally pure in asking this. And so I'm going to throw a caveat on it. Let me guarantee you, your motives aren't totally pure. They never will be. You're always going to have impure motives in asking for something. And yet Jesus knows this. And still he says... Ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. What's going on here? Why would he make such a bold promise? I believe it is this. The Lord trusts us. We are his adult children. 
He trusts us. He trusts in the relationship of love that we have with him. He trusts in the power of his word working in our hearts, even though he knows they're not totally pure. He knows we have mixed motives. And yet he still gives to us the dignity and the grace of exercising our imaginations. Do you feel the freedom to do that? To pray according to the things that are stirred up in your mind and your heart that you want for the kingdom? That you want for fruitfulness personally and in your family and in your church and in your city? That you want for the glory of God? I think too often we actually relate to God as this slave master God and we forget that he's a father. It's the pagan gods that said we don't want to do any work. We'll make the humans do the work. It's our God who says these are my children. These are my children. And he says to them, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? I'll do it for you. If you've spent any time with children or you have your own children, have you ever stopped and said to them, what do you want to do today? What do you want to do this afternoon? And you don't set the agenda for them and you just say, what, what do you have in mind? And see what comes out of them. And then enjoy actually fulfilling whatever crazy dream they came up with. Now that's not going to work if you have a broken relationship with that child. That's not going to work if that child is in a state of rebellion and his heart's set on evil desires. But if that child is abiding in you and you abiding in that child and you have a good, strong love relationship, your hearts are connected, then you can say to that child, what do you want to do today? How do you want to spend our time? How do you want to spend our money? I tried that with my children the other day. We were sitting around the table and we were talking about eating sweets, I think. And I was saying no a lot. <laughs> I guess I was tired of saying no. And so I said, guys, what if I just said yes all day long to everything you ask? What if I just said yes? And their eyes got real big. <laughs> and you could tell they were thinking like, this would be good. And they, they were talking about sweets. And so they were like, well, I would eat all these sweets. And one of them, I don't remember which one it was, but one of them checked themselves. And they said, I would eat all these sweets. And they said, no, I would limit it because I don't want my belly to hurt. My words, Paisley's words, had gotten in them, right? Our words were dwelling in them. It had become part of their own desire and their own thought. And they said, we're going to have their... No, wait a minute. We don't want to have all those sweets because then we might feel sick. There's a story in scripture that illustrates this to me so powerfully. And I don't think that we always bring out this particular angle of the story. But it's Luke 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. We know it well. You got one son, the younger one, who's a jerk, who hates his father. He says, I want you dead. I want your money. I'm out of here. He goes. He spends it on drinking and prostitutes and whatever wild living he could come up with. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets uh, totally empty. And then he wants to come home. He's coming home and he's got his apology speech. And we know the story. The father longing for his son to come home. Sees him and he doesn't wait like this. He starts running and he would have had a robe on like mine. And just, he doesn't care. He's just running. He's just running with open arms to embrace his son. And he does. And he starts throwing a party and he does all these things. And he gives them all these things. Fatted calf, robe. But one of the things he gives them is a ring. He says he put a ring on his finger. And some of the cultural commentators said, you know, that ring was the signet ring. It was the family ring. And what it meant was that that lousy son now had authority to do business in the father's name. You see, he didn't, he didn't just forgive the son. He trusted the son again. 
even though he didn't deserve the trust. And then you got the other jerk son, right? He stayed home all those years, but he hated his father too. And the minute that his younger son, younger brother came home and there was celebration, he was angry and he went outside away from the father's presence, away from the party. And the father, once again, disgracing himself, went out to the older son and he pleaded with him. And the words he said to him, it's my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. You're a jerk too, but I trust you. I trust you and I put all of my resources at your disposal. See it in Peter, John 21. He doesn't just forgive Peter, he restores Peter. He gives him trust. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. I'm going to put you back in a place of responsibility. Do you believe we have this kind of God? who doesn't just forgive us, who doesn't just love us, but part of his forgiveness and love is that he trusts us again to put a ring on our finger and he says, I want you to ask. Sky's the limit. What do you want to ask for? We're connected. Our hearts are abiding. What do you want to ask for? Friends, I know this church. I know you. And you are and we are a church that abides. We love the word of God. We spend time in it. We dwell in it. But are we a community that asks? Are we a community that dreams big dreams and that goes to our Father and says, would you fulfill these dreams? So what do you want to ask for? What fruit do you want to see in your life, in this church, in our city, in our world? How do you want to see God get glorified? Isn't it interesting that he actually gives us a role to play in asking for what ultimately is going to bring him glory? Use your imagination. God will be glorified through it. Do you want to see a hundred adult baptisms in the next five years? Do you want to see people lifted out of poverty through the love, the prayers, the resources and service of this body? Do you want to see children who didn't really know how to read and had no confidence in school know how to read and have confidence in school? The tutor, I'm the teacher for the the boy I'm tutoring. I don't feel like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just go, I spend a little time with him every other week. It's hardly anything. And she said to me towards the end of the year, hey, his English has improved. He's doing better. The ESL teacher's thinking about taking him out. That wasn't me. I just showed up. The Lord was doing something in our love and our prayers for Lansdowne Elementary. Do you want to see the Holy Spirit move? I know that you have emotional hurts. I know that you have physical things. Do you believe that God can still heal? Do you believe that he wants to? Do you want to see that happen? What about our relationships, our fellowship? Do you want to see a body of believers so in unity and in love with each other and with Christ dwelling together in rich and frequent community? What do you want to ask for, friends? What's stopping us with the Father that we have? What is stopping us from coming before the throne of mercy and asking him? my hope is that people, when they enter these ordinary doors or whatever doors God may give us in the future, they don't see a cross necessarily or a, even a fruit vine. But they walk in and they see the signs all around of all of these people abiding in Christ. And fruit is just bursting forth organic, organically and naturally and wonderfully. So let's come before the throne right now. And let's ask him to stir our hearts 
believing the Spirit is here and working in us and what we want to ask for. Come Holy Spirit. Thank you. You've given us this great promise. Help us to abide in you, Lord. Help your words to abide in us. Teach us what that looks like in daily life, in church life. Lord, I ask right now that you would give dreams, fresh desires to your people. You said when the Holy Spirit came that your young men would dream dreams, your old men would see visions. Lord, would you give those dreams, would you give those visions right now? We enter into the season of Pentecost in just a few weeks, Lord. We trust and believe that over this summer, as we abide in you, you will be bringing new imaginations of fruitfulness, Lord. We bless you, Lord. We thank you for the things you're already doing in our midst. Carry on, Lord. Bring your life-giving sap through the vine, through the branches, into fruit in our lives, in our body. We bless you, Lord. We bless you. And we pray in the name, the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.